I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to Voices of Reason. This is Amy Donaldson. I'm flying solo this week. I have no Jason Lee. Uh, he's still in Ghana. Um, I'm joined this week by uh, uh, a very good friend of ours, uh, Congressman Ben McAdams. Um, we produce, here at Loudmouth Project, we produce his podcast, Washington. Um, but we wanted to have a more, uh, a little bit broader conversation than you normally, you usually do the interviewing on your podcast. Um, but wanted to talk about um, a bill that you're working on um, that is, I think, interesting, but also complicated. Why yeah. don't you give us, yeah. give us a little bit of background? So I'm going to start by telling you a story. Charles Kokesh owned a, a firm that provided investment advice to business development companies. So over the course of about 12 years, Charles Kokesh misappropriated tens of millions of dollars from the companies that he was advising, funding a lavish lifestyle for himself, just you know, living high and, and, and siphoning money off from this company, uh, from these companies who he was hired to invest in or, or provide advice to. And in the process then was defrauding the investors out of millions of dollars. So after his illegal activity was discovered by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, they brought an enforcement action against Mr. Kokesh. He was found guilty of misappropriating these investor funds, and the court ordered him to pay a civil penalty of $2.4 million, and they also ordered him uh, to give back roughly the $35 million that he had taken. This is uh, in the law. It's called you have, uh, equitable remedies and punitive pe- uh, penalties. So, um, and punitive means essentially that you're punished. Here's, here's your punishment for the crime, and then equitable is fairness. Well, you also... There's a punishment, there's a fine for your bad actions, but you also have to give back the money you stole, which isn't necessarily a punishment, it's just making whole the people who you did harm to. So in 2017, the Supreme Court ruled that the Securities and Exchange Commission's disgorgement authority, uh, that's the ability of them to seek repayment of their ill-gotten gains, that it's subject to a five-year statute of limitations. And they hinted that that the um, the Supreme Court also hinted in a footnote that the SEC might not even be able to seek disgorgement at all. So what did that mean for Charles Kokesh? Well, in the end, all he, he was ordered to repay $5 million in his profits and got to keep another $30 million for himself. $30 million that he was able to get through nefarious means. That's $30 million in profits from illegal activity. And most importantly, it's $30 million that uh, those people who were defrauded by him will never get back. So what does, the SEC, uh, what does the Supreme Court decision mean for the SEC? Well, they estimate that in the two years since the Kokesh decision, it didn't just apply to Charles Kokesh. It now applies to all enforcement actions that the SEC is bringing. So the SEC estimates that in the two years since this decision, they have had to forego over a billion dollars in disgorged funds. That's $1 billion in illegally gained funds that people get to keep rather than return to the investors that they, uh, that they took it from. 
Can I ask what the sure. rationale of the court was? Well, the rationale is, so again, it's, it's uh, under the law, you have kind of these two remedies. One is punitive. Mm-hmm. There's a, yeah. a, I have four kids, so let's analogize it to my kids. My kids uh, break a light, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to have two, and they're recklessly, they're paying, and they break, break the light fixture. So on one hand, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to say, you cannot, this ball is going to be in timeout for a week. Yeah. And then I also might have a, another remedy, which is you also have to pay $20 to fix the light fixture. Now, that's not necessarily a punishment. That is just out of fairness. You broke it. Yeah. You have to fix it, right? So yeah. there's these two courses of remedies under the law. Well, the Supreme Court ruled that this disgorgement, having to give back these funds, looks a lot more, more like punishment than it does fairness. And so punishment is always subject to a statute of limitations. Actions of fairness, restoring the funds you took, um, has historically it's it's not subject to a, a statute of limitations. You just have to give back the money you made. You have to pay restitution for mm-hmm. whatever you did, and then the punishment on top of that is is subject to the statute of limitations. They ruled that it all looks like punishment. I think it was a wrong decision, uh, and the deci- the impact of the decision is what we're telling all these fraudsters is if you can hold on for five years, you're golden. Yeah, you know the rest of it. You get to keep everything after five years, and so it really has some pretty, ne- pretty negative impacts on the SEC's ability to enforce. On, uh, I mean, I guess a, a fraudster has every incentive to hide it already, but get, gives them a greater benefit for being able to conceal their behavior, and um, and the investors just lose. You know, they don't get this money back, even if the person who stole it has it still. They don't have to give it back if it's beyond the five year window. Um, and on the five-year window, is it um, like, the, does the clock start running the minute they get charged, or is it from the time it occurs? Like, because you can delay something five years in the courts pretty easily. Yeah, well, it'd be a rolling window. So, uh, okay. uh, from the time the action is brought, it would it would freeze it there. But if Charles Kokesh was uh, was defrauding people for twelve years. Yeah. Uh, once they brought the action, it would it would start. That would that would be the time they'd be able to go back five years from that time. So he essentially gets to keep seven years of his illegal activity, and he'd be subject to disgorgement for the most recent five years. So it's you, you're not rewarded for the delay in the courts, but you are rewarded if you're not caught or if it's not brought for a certain period. This of seems time. stunning because if you look at like seizure laws, like they're you know the civil forfeiture laws, yeah. it's like the opposite. They don't care at all. You don't even have to get convicted and you can lose property. Yeah. Yeah. So I just is this just that it's the SEC or is it the white collar versus I don't I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean I I think Or they uh, challenged it in the Supreme Court. They and, challenged in the Supreme Court. Yeah. They 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 made a winning argument that the Supreme Court upheld and and essentially the remedy is the Supreme Court saying now uh, Congress can set the laws. We can say statute of limitations for this isn't five years, it's forever, you mm-hmm. know, or whatever we want to say. And so that's where we are right now is the Supreme Court handed down this decision in 2017 that everybody recognizes is a, a bad decision. Okay. Or, um, yeah. uh, in the Supreme it's Court, a problem. It well, created the, a bunch of problems. Yeah, the Supreme yeah. Court would say it's a good decision, but it does create, it recognizes that it mm-hmm. does create this problem of, uh, and so it warrants a reaction from Congress. Are we satisfied with the five-year statute of limitations or uh, do we want to change that? So that's where my legislation comes in. So, And when we come back, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about exactly what the legislation does and sort of how you got involved in it. Great. You're listening to the Voices of Reason. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. 
In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Voices of Reason. This is Amy Donaldson, um, flying solo this week, uh, here with Congressman Ben McAdams in his very um, austere West Jordan office. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for taking some time to talk about um, this legislation that um, deals with some financial fraud issues that were raised by Supreme Court decision um, in 2017. So why don't you just give us some background on how you got involved in this? Yeah. So one of the things people don't know about me is prior to serving as the mayor of Salt Lake County and in the Utah State Senate, I was actually, I'm a securities attorney. And so this is the area of law that I practiced in. I taught at the University of Utah Law School securities regulation. So uh, this is a, a subject matter that I have some expertise and some passion really. And so when I was elected to the state Senate in uh, 2009, uh, one of the issues that I wanted to focus on was was financial fraud. And Utah, you know, we are one of the leading, sadly, one of the leading states in the nation uh, for financial fraud. And, and I did some calculations at the time that um, working with um, some of our law enforcement agencies here that, and we estimated the, the value of fraud per year in the state of Utah. And I was surprised to learn that uh, the fraud in Utah is larger than the ski industry in Utah in the, in the amount of dollars that are siphoned off from hardworking people uh, going to for ill-gotten gains. And so for me, it, it, it became personal. These mm-hmm. are, this is my state. And, and you know, people ask why would is... You, would you just yeah. go into that a little bit? Because I think sometimes people think people who are, do the, this white-collar crime, like these are people with money stealing from people who have money. Why should I care about that? Yeah. Well, um, for me, I would say it's personal. One of the things that I love about living in Utah, everybody comes here and says, people are so nice. People are so friendly. And that is true. That's what. That's why, you know, I, I was born and raised here. My wife was born and raised here. But we moved out of state for a few years, and we wanted to move back to raise our kids here because Utah is so nice and friendly and family-friendly. It's a great place to live. And yet I think that that's also what people prey upon. Uh, these are people who take advantage of our best qualities. We are so quick to trust and so willing to see the best in others. And they use that to prey upon us, to, to gain our trust. And many of the people who, are, uh, who I've met who are victims of fraud, it's, it's the sweet widow whose husband just passed away and she's looking to stretch out her retirement savings so that she can stretch it through her golden years. And she hears somebody who, who comes, you know, bearing uh, 
you know, promises that, that, that of financial success and we can help you and you'll be able to provide for your grandkids and do all these things and convinces this person to then invest. And, uh, and it strings along for a little while. And, and these are real life stories that I've heard that they then say, well, you know, what's happening with my investment? Don't worry. It's, uh, you know, here's, here's the status of it. It's, it's actually growing. It's going really well. All the while, this person is driving fancy cars, flying around on a private jet, building an enormous home with these Ill- illegally taken funds. And, uh, and it all comes crashing down, usually about 10 years later, when they can't sustain, they can't bring in enough victims to sustain the lifestyle. And, you know, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll take an investment of a million dollars and they'll pay back 100000 and that person thinks that they're getting, reaping some benefit on it. And, and they're really good about stringing it along. And when we see these headlines in the state of Utah, Every few months, sadly, yeah. and uh, and the victims are real people. They're people we go to church with, that we work with, that we're our neighbors who are just trying to live their lives and uh, and doing what we love about Utah. They're trusting and mm-hmm. friendly and seeing the best in others, and they're preying upon that. And one of the things I I remember um, one of the, a victim of a pretty heinous crime had gotten a settlement, a, a life insurance settlement, and it became a big news story because they got taken advantage of and um and and you know stolen from right and i think that um those are the cases where you think oh that but there's so much like they don't go get help or they don't report it because it is there's a, a bit of shame associated with yeah this idea that i trusted them and they'll say well didn't you get a statement or didn't you do this or didn't you do that um and you just feel worse right yeah. about it and the what i in my experience they don't usually get the money back they that's yeah. it's gone it's gone uh, sophisticated savvy people fall for this all the time you know it's a it's a friend it's someone you trust and you don't ask for the disclosures and all of that and then you you do you feel stupid and you feel taken advantage of and you don't want to admit it so you're slow to go to the authorities and so when i was in the state senate i introduced uh, several pieces of legislation to try and tackle this we were able to pass those those pieces of legislation with bipartisan support through the the Utah State Senate it became an issue that I felt really strongly about, and and uh, and being part of uh, cracking down on some of these uh, investment scams uh, in Utah. Something that I'm very proud of of my service in, in the State Senate. Uh, as mayor, I, my life took a different direction. You know, I, I was more focused on potholes and cutting grass in parks and and building trails than than anything else. But but it is something where I think that um, I don't want Utah to change. I don't want us to be less trusting and less. Uh, willing to see the good in others and to see the best in a stranger. I want the strangers who are trying to change us or take advantage of us to face the consequences and that we can recover the maximum amount from those people who are preying upon us. So then did you know about this Supreme Court case and decide to address it or did somebody bring it to you? I, I was aware of the case uh, and as were many people. Uh, it's, it's been about two years since that case was handed down. Uh, there was concern from the Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC had expressed that this would really hinder their ability to enforce uh, against bad actors. Uh, Republicans and Democrats knew that this was something we'd have to address. Uh, there's uh, some senators who are looking at it on the Senate side. And so I'm on the House, today I'm on the House Financial Services Committee that has oversight over the Securities and Exchange Commission and, and the laws in this area. And so in talking with some of my colleagues, both, again, both Republicans and Democrats, we've said, we've got to take action on this and we've got to um, pass legislation to uh, to restore the SEC's ability to recover these ill-gotten funds from fraudsters who were taking advantage of 
of people across this country and and to make sure that we can recover those funds to the greatest extent possible. And so uh, I, I partnered up with Representative Hazenga, uh, Republican, uh, to work on, and we've introduced legislation. There was, uh, we had a hearing in June where the SEC came and testified about, and other experts testified about um, this legislation and what would, um, why it would be necessary and maybe some parameters of what it would look like. And then we went to work from there uh, to really hammer out the details. You know, there, we all agreed that legislation was necessary, what that legislation looked like. There were some differences of opinion in that regard. So rolled up my sleeves, Representative Hazenga and I and our staffs got together, um, uh, worked with um, the SEC and others to kind of craft what a good piece of legislation would look like to address this. And, and uh, so in September, uh, we had a hearing, uh, a committee hearing on this, and we're able to pass out this legislation out of committee with strong bipartisan support. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm wondering who would be against something like this. Well, you know, some... You know, maybe they're against the details. I don't know. Yeah, sure. I mean, some, yeah. some of the, the investment community is concerned because... Uh, so under before Kokesh, the you ha- would have to disgorge all the funds, and and people would say, you know, that is hard for us to quantify if we are a, a business and maybe one of our employees is is committing fraud and we don't know that. And uh, do we have to reserve against this? What will it do to our business? Um, I hear that concern. I disagree with that concern. If, if one of your employees has defrauded people, then you should be responsible to pay people back. Uh, but that was some of the concern of. Uh, maybe they didn't know, uh, and should, to what extent should they be responsible for the actions of one of their employees? Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's in the bill and sort of what it's like to kind of take the little bits and pieces that everybody tells you, their expertise, and put them into a bill. Um, you're listening to the Voices of Reason podcast. Welcome back to the Voices of Reason. This is Amy Donaldson. I'm by myself this week, all by myself, driving this car. And this week I'm joined by um, Congressman Ben McAdams. We are discussing fraud and what uh, this bill, what's the actual like title of this bill? Uh, it's the... It has a long title. Like it does have a yeah. long title. I'm not... Shareholder Protection... But basically addresses fraud, uh, yeah. people yeah. who are defrauded by... Investor protection. Investor uh, protection, well, yeah. 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 So, so, so let's just start that over. Okay. What's the bill called? <laughs> Investor Protection and Capital Markets Fairness Act. Okay. I remember. Let's start I over. Like, I know. So long. Yeah. I won't ask that question. Okay. <laughs> okay, Nobody's Josh. Cut all. As soon as I said it, I was like, that was a dumb question, but you know, I'm a sports writer. And this week I'm joined by um, Congressman Ben McAdams. We are discussing fraud and what and we're talking about fraud. And uh, it's a topic that, unfortunately, is all too familiar here in Utah. Um, but you've taken some action on the federal level. And I just wondered, uh, I, as you were describing in the last segment, um, sort of the negotiations and having the SEC come in and testify, what goes into um, putting this together? Like, it seems to me that everyone should want to eliminate fraud and hold fraudsters accountable and make them pay stuff back. So what, what are the points of contention. Yeah, I mean so uh, pre pre before the decision before the Kokesh decision the the statute of limitations for the punishment part was 5 years, but the statute of limitations for the uh, disgorgement the equitable remedy was 
uh, you know, to whatever amount, or there's no limit on, on time. And um, we wanted to, uh, you know, my original version of the bill would restore it back to uh, the disgorgement, which was subject to the full dollar amount that you had defrauded, not subject to a limit of time. Now, there was some, as we discussed uh, on the last segment, there were a few people who said that they wanted it to not be infinite in time, but limited in time. And, and the Kokesh decision by the Supreme Court limited to five years. And most people agreed that that was too short. And so we were talking about what kind of time limit was appropriate. And, you know, for me, this, this gets into the art of legislation mm-hmm. that um, I, I brought my best idea to the table. And, um, and I can stick with that. And I can stand on my soapbox and say why. And I, I will say to this day, I think it is only fair for people to give back every penny that they may have taken. Uh, if they're found guilty of, of fraud, they should give back every penny. And it doesn't matter what the statute of limitations is. But the reality was that legislation was never going to pass out of committee, uh, uh, with, especially not with bipartisan support. So I could have the perfect version of the bill as I saw it and really have nothing. Mm-hmm. Or I could compromise. I could work with people who had different points of view that were valid points of view. And uh, I could try and find common ground with them and pass a bill out of committee with strong bipartisan support that would pass, uh, have a good chance of passing the House of Representatives and hopefully find fertile ground in the Senate that we could get something to the president's desk that would be signed because, uh, because there are people out there right now, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there, the Securities and Exchange Commission estimates that in the last two years, they have lost a billion dollars that they have not been able to recover from fraudsters because of this. And so that's a billion dollars in two years. So every delay, every partisanship or disagreement or inability to compromise means grandma who lost her retirement is never going to get it back because I'm not willing to compromise with somebody on the other side of the aisle. And I think that's wrong. So the art of legislation is sitting down and talking with people who have different points Mm -hmm. of view and finding common ground that can move you forward. Were there any aspects of it? I mean, because obviously you felt like legislation was necessary to um, refine the Supreme Court, like yeah. that, w- that couldn't stand. Right. So, were there any aspects that you said this is this is a I have to have this aspect? Here. Well, so I'll, I'll give you the, really the the negotiation was around how long the statute of limitations mm-hmm. would be from uh, infinite, just based on the dollar amount, to five years was the other extreme that it would be cut off at five years. What we ultimately settled on was a fourteen year statute of limitations for disgorgement of ill gotten funds. I think, you know, 14 years is pretty Which good. You're going to capture most of it. Yeah, because one of the things you said that rung true for me that in my experience years ago in the news division was that um, it takes a while to figure out that somebody's stealing from mm-hmm. you, right? Or that, yeah. or that this investment may not be legitimate. And sometimes that can be five, six, seven to 10 years. Yeah. And so the five-year thing seemed like you might not even know um, or you might not know the fullness of it. Um, in that short amount of time. So in the, in the example of Charles Kokesh, the, mm-hmm. the person who, whose case went to the Supreme Court, it was 12 years. And mm-hmm. so a five-year statute of limitations would mean that he's keeping 65% of the money he stole. He gets to just pocket and walk away with for free. Uh, and I just think that's wrong. So, but a 14-year statute of limitations would pick up 100% of his illegal, illegal activity. It would pick up most of them. You might have some where uh, a year or two is, is lopped off at the end. I think that would be unfortunate. But in the interest of getting legislation that can pass with bipartisan support and hopefully get to the president's desk, I think it's a respectable compromise. So it passed out of committee, and how difficult was that? So by the time we got consensus, um, it, it was 
pretty strong consensus. There was, I made my presentation to the to the committee. My co-sponsor, Republican Hazenga, made a presentation in support of the legislation. Another member uh, ran legislation, uh, ran an amendment to the to it to try to set change the statute of limitations from fourteen years to six years, and I spoke against that. As did um, as did Representative Hazenga. Um, I believe, uh, and um, and it was debated, and it and that amendment to shorten the statute of everybody agreed that something needed to happen. It was again a debate about the length of the statute of limitations. That amendment uh, to change it to six years got some some votes. I want to say ten to fifteen votes uh, in support. It's a committee of over almost sixty people, over sixty people, so it wasn't close to passing, but it was a healthy debate, healthy discussion. The amendment failed, and then uh, and then the bill itself came up for a vote out of committee. And uh, and it passed uh, with strong bipartisan support. In fact, many of the people who were who voted in support of the amendment uh, to shorten the statute of limitations ultimately voted for the 14-year statute of limitations. I think they all agreed it was it was a respectable compromise and worth advancing it to the to the house for a full a full house vote. And so, did it? Where does it go next? Now it's waiting action on the house floor. We're hearing positive signals that you know that that seems like the support is still there. So hopefully it'll come up for uh, for action on the House floor in the next few months, and uh, we feel really good about it. And then uh, there is a similar piece of legislation on the Senate side that they're trying to address the same decision. Uh, it's not uh, a mirror identical to my bill, but it's I think it's close. And then we'll see what action comes out of the Senate, and we'll try and negotiate a compromise and move something forward. Is that bill somewhere in this on the Senate side, somewhere in the same universe, like? Could they come together or in time Yeah, probably they'd come together in some type of a conference committee and we'd hammer out the differences between the two pieces of legislation and then um, send send the revised version back to both the House and the Senate uh, with the expectation that it passed at that point. So in a perfect world, what, when do you expect something like something like this might you know, go to the Senate or this, the Senate bill come to you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um, I can't really control the Senate timeline. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can have something out of the House with uh, a strong bipartisan vote. You know, if we, if we can pass it out of the House with strong votes on both sides of the aisle, that sends a signal to the Senate as well that, that Republicans and Democrats in the House have come together and we want to see action on this. So, Do you go ahead and go to the Senate and say, hey— and try to gather some support? Yeah, I mean, bring. those conversations happen and, okay. and are happening. Um, and uh, and the Senate will probably kind of take their own course, but hopefully with a strong bipartisan support, we can drive the expediency on the Senate side, that they'll feel some urgency, that there is support. Uh, this isn't controversial. There's support to take some action, and, and we can get something done. So we're going to come back in, in just a minute, and when we do, we're going to talk about why the bipartisan aspect of it is so mm-hmm. important. You're listening to The Voices of Reason. Welcome back to the Voices of Reason. This is Amy Donaldson. I am flying without a co-host this week as my co-host Jason's one more week in Ghana. He'll be back next week. Um, joined this week by Congressman Ben McAdams. We've been discussing um, a piece of legislation that, that you've been pushing um, that would basically reform or, or reinstate some of the protections for consumers when it comes to fraud, people who are defrauded by um, sec- securities and investments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that's the, syn- the very, very uh, layperson uh, synopsis of that bill. Um, so why does bipartisanship matter? Like you said, 
the Senate will see it come out with a lot of bipartisan support. Who cares? Why does that matter? Well, and I, th- I think we can talk about both my legislation, but then legislation generally, right? So um, I probably had the votes to pass it out for, on day one with only Democratic votes. Mm-hmm. But for me, I knew that um, the bill really wouldn't probably go anywhere with just Democratic votes. What I wanted to do was to change the law, because I think that the law as it stands right now, people are losing out. They're, they're not able to recover uh, money lost in fraud from fraudsters. And so it's important to me to not just have a symbolic vote, but to actually make a difference and and to get something done. And so the art of legislation is a lot of times it's the smoke signals you're sending up. And the smoke signal I wanted to send up is this passed out a committee not on a party line vote, because if it's passed on a party line vote, that kind of sends the signal to uh, the House floor, they're going to look and see how it was addressed in committee. And so a party line vote in committee probably leads to a party line vote on the House floor. A party line vote on the House floor probably means that the Senate's just going to ignore it as a, as a message bill or something symbolic that we did. And, and I think we can do better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, By sitting down and talking to somebody on the other side of the aisle, by working really hard to get uh, bipartisan support, the smoke signal we send out of committee as it goes to the House floor is there's a lot of consensus around this. This is a good bill, and it's not really a Republican-Democrat bill. It's, it's a good bill that's good for the American people. We send that signal to the House floor, and hopefully we get a strong bipartisan vote on the House floor that then sends that same, same signal to the Senate that this is something that is desired and needed and not really that controversial. All the details have been hammered out. You guys should take it up too. Um, there's two things, I two reactions I have. One is that just being here in Salt Lake and reading the things I read and, and listening to the things I listen to, um, it's our impression that um, not a lot is getting done in Washington. And some of that happens because the Senate won't take up what you what the yeah. House does and the House won't take up what the Senate does. So how do you, like, what's the response to it? Is, is it possible for this to be taken up by the Senate? I mean, are you hopeful that... Yeah, I think sometimes you get um, a misperception. So, uh, and I don't want this by any means to be blaming the news media, especially sitting across from Amy Donaldson here. That's right. Be careful. <laughs> um, the news I is going to cover. Mic. Yeah. <laughs> the news is going to cover what's newsworthy. Yeah. Consensus and and isn't isn't really and newsworthy. Cooperation, cooperation isn't newsworthy. It's not super so sexy headline. Yeah. This bill we've we've hammered out all of the controversy, which is why it's ready to pass. It also is why it probably isn't hugely newsworthy, right? Mm-hmm. Because all the controversy is hammered out before it, before it comes up for a vote. Uh, so Washington, they're actually, um, I'm, I'm, I think Washington is low on results and I'm frustrated by the gridlock and partisanship there. Uh, but there, there is stuff that gets done. Uh, and it doesn't, it just doesn't drive the headlines because it's just not as interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. what is going to be interesting is where there are epic battles and disagreement and, and that's naturally going to get covered. It's naturally what people are going to pay attention to. It's what you remember. And so there's you, a lot of controversy. Maybe you and Representative Hazinga could fake a fight. See? We, yeah, there you work. go. <laughs> Fighting about dis, uh, <laughs> statute of limitations. That's yes. classic statute of limitations yeah, yeah. argument. <laughs> no, I do think there is this also a reluctance to give the other team a win. There is. Uh-huh. So how how is it possible that everyone – I mean, this seems to me to be really difficult to find a reason that you would be against this. I, I agree. You know? Yeah, no, so, I agree. So how do you couch it or how do you sell it to everyone that, like, this is – everyone is doing the right thing for the right reasons. And like you say, billions of dollars are being kept by thieves that would maybe be eligible to be returned to the people who were, were victims. Well, it would be a travesty for it not to be voted out just based on politics. You know, I, 
I um, won a very close election, and there are people who don't want to see me have any success because uh, if I'm successful, it might be a reason to reelect me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that would be a travesty if we look past the, the millions of people, thousands of people who are defrauded every year and not able to recover, and we don't fix that even where we've got bipartisan consensus, we don't fix that because of partisanship. I've, and look, I, I'm not, I think there are people, there are people with partisan leanings like that on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. I think it is wrong. You need to put that out of mind, not even think about it. And just, we were elected to work for the American people, mm-hmm. elected by the American people. And that needs to be our focus. You just take that out of mind and, and do the right thing. And then elections come when they come. And, uh, and it's a healthy part of the process. But if you let an election contaminate the, the deal-making, negotiation mm-hmm. process of legislating, then, then you, that, that's what breaks the system. Our system's broken, and I think we do allow politics and elections to permeate too much of the, of the legislating that we were elected to do. Well, and so then, uh, you know, we have a little, we have three minutes left, and my next question is, can you get anything done, even if it's like the most obviously everybody's in consensus with this whole impeachment inquiry thing hanging over? I mean, everyone's worried now that nothing else will get addressed. No other issue will be, because there's a lot of problems that we would love to see addressed, yeah. regular people. Um, how, regardless of how you feel about the impeachment inquiry, yeah, I think regardless of how you feel, I'm not um, I'm not really on the inside scoop on a lot of this. I'm not on the the relative committees, but I will tell my colleagues on both sides of the aisle um, because of the impeachment inquiry that's moving forward. That is why we have to get stuff done. We have to show people that we aren't shutting down and turning off the lights because of of this disagreement. We have even more duty to get stuff done and move things forward. So a classic example of something we're working on is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement, the mm-hmm. NAFTA 2.0, that um, the president has negotiated an agreement. I think it gets most of the way there. There are some sticking points that I, that I think are you know, reasonable sticking points where people are saying we'd like to see these three or four areas strengthened. So they sent a counterproposal back to the White House and then the counter-counterproposal. These are actually, and, and I've asked, I'm not on the negotiation team or anything, but I'm, I'm asking people, do you feel like these, I'm asking both Republicans and Democrats, are we just playing games? Are we inching towards an agreement? And people say that they actually think people, both sides are negotiating in good faith and getting us closer to an agreement. And I really hope that we can get that deal done, bring it up for a vote and pass it with bipartisan support before the end of the year, I think is important. And, uh, and the impeachment inquiry um, only makes it more important that we show that we can, uh, we can get something done uh, in a bipartisan fashion. Is that, are you an outlier or do you have a lot of colleagues who feel similar, similarly? I mean, there are some notable exceptions on both sides of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. People who do, this is the only thing they care about. Um, mm-hmm. For me, I was elected to do a job. You know, I, I again, I approach my job in Congress kind of like a mayor. Um, I want to get stuff done. I'm focused on getting stuff done. Um, I'm not really someone who gets all worked up about the drama. And I, I'm not saying that the impeachment inquiry is not important. I think there are serious allegations that have been raised that need to be understood. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to prejudge my response to that. I think the process needs to be play out, played out. It's important. But in the meantime, let's keep focused on our day jobs, people, and let's get some stuff done uh, that we were elected to do. And, and I think there are a lot of people actually with that attitude. Like I said, notable exceptions on both sides of the aisle, but I think a lot of people 
are still there with their sleeves rolled up, ready to get stuff done. Uh, we come back home to our districts and people are talking about uh, the issues that they care about. And, uh, and Im- impeachment is one of those issues, but it's not the only issue by any means. They want to see us working together to get stuff done. That's what I promise to do, and that's what I'm doing. And so do you have a realistic like timeline for, for this, or is this just going to be something you're just going to have to keep cracking the whip on? Yeah, I think we, we, we conti- we're, we're continuing working on that. Um, the the one thing so that the house there are 435 representatives so trying to get your 10 minutes of floor time is <laughs> is a, a competitive midnight s- on friday yeah. night right <laughs> so we are we're working on it i think um we feel good about it but it's uh it'll kind of depend on on what else is happening on the floor and where we can squeeze it in but uh, all the signals are good at this point and i do feel uh confident that we can get it up for uh, approval by the full house before the end of the year all right. Well, thank you so much for making time. Uh, it's been great to have you back in Utah. Uh, love following your adventures, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to the Voices of Reason podcast. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.